Last week, we had a baby dedication with uh, five little boys. We understand there are more on the way. So five little boys, Pastor Daniel said, it's our basketball team. I'm thinking baseball. So ladies, never mind. Uh, we thank you, Dan. Where are you, Dan? He's gone. Oh, there he is. Thank you for leading us this morning in music. It's a delight to sing music that reflects the truth of Scripture, isn't it? So that, so that we're reminded of its truth. I was thinking of Peter and, and living stones yesterday. I'm working in the garden, laying out a path. And I went down to cut the outline for how I got to scoop out the little spot the stone's going to go. And God is taking each of us and making us living stones. And he's carved out a particular area for each of us to minister here and, and when we go out. And he has given us Jesus. What, what will he withhold from us? He's given us Christ. What amazing grace. So, this morning I, I want to talk to us about uh, some, some heavy things. I, I titled the sermon, Don't Collapse, Run. I don't mean run in fear. There's a little bit of a, a track metaphor. So I, I don't need to get the newspaper out. I, we don't need to look on our devices to see that our culture's in trouble. There is evil all around us. So how should we respond to the evil in our culture? Everybody's got different ideas. We, we have evil in schools, evil in the courts, evil in economics. There's evil all around us. And how do we keep it from getting in here? If we don't stop it, what will happen? How will we respond to the evil in our culture? If, if you would, I, I didn't look up in the chair, Bibles, but open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is, I think, the third epistle to the Ephesians, as it were. Paul wrote Ephesians, and then he wrote an epistle to Timothy earlier in the ministry. This is the second epistle to Timothy. John is going to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to Ephesus. John's going to write another epistle from Christ to Ephesus, the first church in Revelation. Seven epistles this church got, at least, if not more. It's at the end of Paul's ministry. He doesn't think he's going to get out of prison. And so he writes to Timothy, 
And Timothy has to respond to the evil in his culture, just as we do. I want to read the first nine verses as an introduction. So follow along. First Timothy, Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. I'll split it in the middle at uh, verse 4. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. There will come. This is future for Paul. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So one through four looks like it's going to be very treacherous, doesn't it? These are some of the strongest words in the New Testament about the times that are coming. Paul says there's still future, five through eight. What about that treachery coming into the church? Verse five. Having the appearance of godliness. They talk the jargon. They know some of the memory verses. They know Jesus is not the answer to every question in Sunday school. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The power of godliness produces fruit, specifically in conquering sin and the sins that he just mentioned above in our walk because we all come out of that when God saves us. Some of us younger, some of us older, but we come out of that worldliness that's opposed to God. Avoid such people. They are predators. Verse 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're predators. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge, at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannies and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men, these predators, oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This almost reads like prophecy, doesn't it? But Paul is not discussing the reconciliation of all things at the return of Christ to establish his kingdom in full flower. He's encouraging Timothy in the middle of a brutal ministry in a culture that we would call brutal. He's giving him God's instructions 
in a situation that may well appear hopeless. Verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 in particular are where Timothy is looking. That's, that's what he's looking forward to in ministry. That's what's coming. So he's giving him instruction. When was the last time you heard someone ask that rhetorical question? What's the use? What difference will it make? And they're ready to give up. Watch how Paul develops his encouragement for Timothy to endure. Verses 10 through 13, Paul gives godly examples of faithful perseverance appearing in vicious times through faithful believers. First, Paul in verses 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Since Acts 16, when Paul brought Timothy along on the missionary journey, Timothy has been an eyewitness of Paul and the work of the Spirit of God in the way Paul carried himself. Timothy knew, knows by hearsay of the consistency of Paul's walk when he's not with him. No one calls Paul a hypocrite justly. He reminds Timothy of their history, the history before he even met Timothy. Look at the categories. Think of the categories, these categories in this verse, and look at your life and the influence upon those you disciple, the ones God's given into your care. They know your teaching. You know my teaching, my manner of life, my plans, my faith. My patience, this idea of patience is when you have a chance, mostly this term's used with people and difficult circumstances, when you could go and challenge them and you don't, you refrain. You know my love and steadfastness. This is also translated as patience sometimes, but this is when you don't have a choice, sometimes with people, sometimes with circumstances. Timothy knows all of this about Paul, his teaching. He's been with him. He's lived with him. He says then in verse 11, my persecutions, you have followed these things. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy knew of the sufferings in Acts 13 and 14 before he'd even got to meet up with Timothy. He not only heard about the suffering of others, but Paul's own experience. And the Lord rescued Paul, giving him faithful endurance. If Paul had given up, he would have died. Timothy saw the deliverance time and again. The Lord delivered me from all of it. And what should Timothy and what should we conclude from all this? How do we apply this to our lives? Verse 12, 
answers that for us. Yea, indeed, in fact, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is not a surprise. Wait, wait a minute. Let me read that again. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's also future. Is that a command? It's not a command. No, not at all. Oh, but you know what? I just want to live my life. I want to live in faithfulness to Christ. I just want to get along. I don't want to bother anyone. Never mind a rose garden. (laughs) As long as evil exists, moral evil, believers living consistently biblical godly lives will be persecuted. It starts in school. Oh, you're going to church? You just need that for a crutch. When you get older, it gets to be a little more severe. This this is just amazing. I, I want us to consider verse 12. Add this to your filter as you listen to podcasts or watch TV with a preacher that maybe you haven't vetted yet. One you haven't screened. This isn't a command, but a promise of the response unbelievers have toward whom? Toward believers. In fact, he says, it's emphatic. Everyone desiring to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Can I ask you about your desires this morning? Are you consumed with that? With living a godly life in Christ? If you are, I can tell you what's coming. It doesn't look happy, but it's just another occasion for us to count it all joy when we experience very various trials. There are two categories of people here. Believers and unbelievers. He's not teaching that everyone will be persecuted. He's not talking about the persecution of unbelievers, right? That doesn't even make sense. Unbelievers don't desire to live godly lives according to the dictates of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It doesn't even make sense that they would be objects of persecution. What, are they going to be persecuted for not believing in Jesus? No. Believers are the ones who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Does not the Holy Spirit put that desire in every one of our hearts? Every believer has that desire. And he says, at the end of verse 12, those desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, all of them will have persecution coming their way. If I can summarize a little bit, going back to verse 8. Certain unbelieving men resist the truth, just like in the Old Testament. It is now just like it was then, through centuries of time. 3,500 years ago, 1,500 years ago for Paul. It's interesting that Moses versus Pharaoh is brought up from the Exodus, and these men, Jannies and Jambres, weren't misguided believers who just needed a little nudging to get back on track. They are those who are in open opposition to God, whose targeted victims are God's covenant people. We 
are their victims and we have to stand guard. If we have to do it physically with the sheepdogs, how much more spiritually with our philosophy and theology of pleasing God, knowing that opposition is coming. Our goal of our recognizing and resisting false teachers is to expose their ungodly foolishness. This revelation by believers, by us, of the irrational behavior of the lost is what God uses to impede the progress of blasphemers in the culture. Does that make sense? If we don't stand against them, what will stop them? Especially by those who might creep in among us. He uses believers to impede their progress. For Timothy, whatever their foolishness is exactly, other than resisting the truth, and the open presentation of foolishness is the goal for Timothy, he has to expose them before the whole church. This is no light matter. It's important, it's essential, and it's difficult. Verses 10 and 11 is a testimony reminding Timothy of the resistance that Paul faced in the past, and now Timothy faces in the church at Ephesus. Paul summarizes the reason that this opposition is occurring in verse 12. Oppressive persecution is always going to be the case for believers living godly lives. But the persecution comes from those who oppose the truth. It does not come from believers. These aren't just hard times. These are devilishly deceitful times. This oppressive conflict with unbelievers is not supposed to happen among believers unless the deception of a wolf is exposed. Well, that, that doesn't sound good, does it? Don't misunderstand me at all. I am not wanting you. Let me repeat it. I am not wanting you to think, I believe this is the case among us now. Okay, everybody... But the pressure is on, and we know what's coming, and we have to be prepared for it. In Acts 20, verses 28 through 32, Paul instructs the elders at Ephesus in his farewell meeting with the Ephesians that the time would come, perhaps it was not yet, but the time would come when they would face this situation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonish is a more powerful way of warning. Not necessarily a warning of stop it. Look up. Don't mess with the radio. Stop pushing buttons. Drive. 
oh, there's a detour sign. The bridge is out kind of warning. This is ahead of us, Paul says. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How difficult would it be to face off with unbelievers within the church who are teaching a false gospel or other areas of significant error deceitfully, deceitfully in opposition to Scripture. This was precisely the reason Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All the scriptures, and now in particular the gospel. And all their little stories and their, their experiences with God that are not defined by Scripture and interpreted by Scripture but are imposed on Scripture, they use. And you don't even know it. Wait a minute. We've all had people lie to us. Maybe a, not an outright betrayal. Certainly nothing like, like Jesus. But we've, we've had people betray us. We had people pretend to be friends with us in elementary school. And then suddenly, they, you, what, we can't go play football anymore? I, even at that level, we've been betrayed. But the genius of deception is you don't know you're deceived until it's too late. No one warned me. And Paul is saying, this is coming. You have to be warned. Someone had to stop them and silence these men since the church was at stake. So Timothy, here's what I want you to do. No, he didn't have that. It took a long time for notes to go back and forth. He says, I want you to stop those men who are teaching. Where do you suppose they're teaching? In the church. No. Yes. A few years later, Paul is now writing this epistle to Timothy in Ephesus. Timothy's standing guard. And he's writing this to Timothy now, years later. We trust our teachers in our churches, but sometimes we poorly recognize false teaching because we've not been properly trained yet. Expositionally, exegetically, doctrinally, this part of defending the gospel is also part of the purpose for why we are covenanted together to protect each other. Once we let our guard down and allow unbelievers to participate in church practices, they become convinced and established in their self-righteousness. And they begin to fight for what they've been doing in their ministry as though they've been accepted all along because no one resisted them. These false teachers are not fighting for the truth, but for their own testimony to draw followers away to themselves. 
Okay, so there's a little more for your discernment so that you can watch and be on guard. And several, what about those who might come to their rescue? The rescue of a false teacher by maybe a young believer who's not grounded yet. His discernment skills aren't as sharp as they're going to be. If you doubt this, how many of you used to listen to a guy on the radio and now when he comes on, you say, mm, no. Anybody? Yeah. Because we grew up and matured in what the scriptures teach. And we do that with us, among us. Matthew 28. Make disciples and teach them to observe all I've commanded them. All I've commanded. How to obey is built in. So the truth of scripture always has to be the standard. Pastor Jason, thank you for Sunday school. It's like an Old Testament version of this. This is so good. And because that's the case, all our family here at Faith needs to be equipped to recognize false teaching as well as false testimony, a false lifestyle, the recognition of false motives, and you will judge them by their fruit. Yes, we will. And of course, now, now my question is, well, wait a minute. How do we recognize false teaching? We recognize false teaching exclusively because we know what the truth is, don't we? However, what do we do? What do we do if false teachers might become leaders? Apparently, this is what Timothy has to face in Ephesus. We have a goal in that situation and only sound exposition and exegetical theology can accomplish it. When I say exegetical, I just mean drawing out of the text what's already there. Drawing all that's in the text out of there and not imposing my own ideas on it. That's Exegesis means to draw out. In the Old Testament, it's used of Moses in the reed basket being drawn out of the Nile to draw out what's in the text. And only sound exegetical Bible study can accomplish that. We have to make sure of sound teaching for our children. Mom and dad are charged with that, aren't they? Our newest believers whether young or old, are our responsibility. We are responsible to each other to defend against false teaching. This is why we take discipleship so seriously here. Not to make us arrogant, but because the more we mature in our knowledge of Christ, the more humble and less arrogant we become. Because I... Prone to wander... Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The more humble and less arrogant we become since we see our absolute dependency on his strength and to keep constant guard against these predators. When it gets hard, and it will, after all, who likes conflict? 
we must be prepared to face a time. Or perhaps you have a friend in another church right now experiencing teaching that doesn't quite register. We respond differently, different ways to each situation. We see treachery in our culture. We see it in our institutions. Aren't you woke yet? Mm -hmm. How ungodly. We read about treachery in the church and we thank God, not here. But if we aren't careful, but for the grace of God, oh God, protect us. Make us diligent. Bible studies. So Paul is focusing not just on that evil, but on one aspect that threatens Timothy and threatens us in the next section. It threatens all of us just about the same way. But it has more to do with our response to the treachery and our walk. Brace yourself again. Verse 13. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. They're evil and they're bad and they're going to increase. They're going to go from bad to worse. Sorry. Deceiving and being deceived. When's it going to get better? When's this going to end? Can't we have a break? No, we can't ever let our guard down. Sorry, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm just excited. <laughs> With the first nine verses, and now Paul is telling us things will get worse. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Oh, no, not hater. No, no, hater. Oh, officer, come here. Uh, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's what we're in danger of. That's what Timothy was in danger of. That's what we're in danger of with the onslaught of wickedness all around us. And who wouldn't say it's, it's gotten worse? We talk to our grandparents. Well, that's not the way it used to be. I'm old enough growing up in Houston, Texas, knowing that on Sundays, even 7-Eleven was closed. Why? Because there was still a modicum of respect for the culture that was built on spiritual principles, biblical principles, Christian principles. Mm, not so much anymore. Well, what's going to happen? Population increases, percentage-wise, it's coming. It's coming. This sounds like it's commonplace. It was common in Moses' time. Jesus warns about it. Paul warns Timothy about it. And we see it already among us. We ought to expect it. What are you thinking when you read about this kind of moral evil taking place here in 2023 in America and even in our churches? 
Timothy's been an eyewitness of God's faithfulness to Paul already through some vicious times. Okay, verses 14 and 15. Paul reminds Timothy of godly examples of faithful perseverance, testifying to God's faithfulness across generations. The Spirit of God has made us want to live godly in Christ, and he's faithful to accomplish that until the day of Jesus Christ. But but there's a cost because we're going to have to fight against evil. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have been firm and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. Emphatic again, you you Timothy keep going. Continue, is that a command? Mhm. Continue, abide, keep going in the things you have been taught and you have become convinced of because you know from whom you learned these things. Who discipled you? Who took you aside and taught you God's word? And then you saw God's word at work in your life. Timothy, remember that. This is how you're going to fight against the evil in the culture and keep it as much as possible from coming into the church. Ooh, he says, from whom you learned it. Do you have an asterisk next to whom? In your Bible? Yes. It probably says in the note, this is plural. In English, whom, we don't know. Is it, is it singular or is it plural? We, we don't distinguish that, but in Greek, in every other language I've read, they do. So Paul, Paul says there are multiple people, Timothy's, learned these things from. And now we see the sources of those who taught Timothy the scriptures. Look back one chapter to uh, chapter 2. Look back one chapter to chapter 2. I'm sorry. Someday, right? Oh, nope, wrong. Chapter one, chapter one. I'm sorry. I'm thankful to God, whom I have served with a clear conscience. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. I'm thankful to God whom I've served with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I remember you in my prayers. As I do constantly night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that was alive first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure is in you. My goodness, verse 15. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
So if Paul is Timothy's example of how God rescued Paul, who else taught Timothy? Mom and grandma. Timothy's still under 40. He's a young man. Paul missed him. He had a legacy of learning the truth of God's word as a child in his home. Okay? Mom and dad, it's coming. It's coming in our generation, and we have to prepare our children. And now I'm old enough, I get to be a granddad. We have to make sure our grandchildren are prepared for this. Verses 16 and 17. The foundation, the core, and source for this godly perseverance is the power God uses through the scripture alone. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. If you write in your Bible, please in the margin right there, breathed out by God. Inspired is the old translation, but the word doesn't mean to breathe in. It means to breathe out. It's God's voice on paper for us. Man, I can't wait till I get to glory. I'm going to ask God, what about this? What about that? And you know what he's going to do in answer? He's going to say, did you hear my voice in the scriptures? Because I told you already, explicitly or in principle, there it is. And look at how significant this is to fight against the onslaught of what's coming at us in the culture and will come into the church if we don't stand against it. All scripture is breathed out by God. Our Bibles are both the very words and word of God, and by necessity, it must be also that the scriptures are profitable. Look at these four areas of profitability. The Bible is the only advantage for teaching how to respond faithfully in vicious times, for teaching, teaching the standard of God. Ooh, and then After that, the second one, the Bible is profitable for strongly correcting our potentially sinful responses toward faithful service in vicious times. Some people are going to want to quit. What do you do? What do you do with your friend who wants to give it up? How is God going to change their hearts from Scripture through you to them? And that's the encouragement that he's going to provide Teaching, rebuke, something needs to be corrected here. Uh, Trench, a famous scholar a hundred years ago in Greek says, this implies not merely the charge, but the truth of the charge that needs correction. And further, the manifestation of the truth of the charge More than all this, very often also the acknowledgement, if not outward, but inward, on the part of the one accused. God's word says, be faithful, stand against them. Maybe you'll have to give your life. I don't know. Nobody wakes up and says, hey, (laughs) no. Nobody thinks that at the beginning of the day. But the truth on the part of the one accused It's going to be a glorious, 
prerogative of the truth in its highest operation, not merely to assert itself, but to silence our sinful tendencies so that we will conform and God will restore us as we confess our sin. If the Spirit grants repentance, then the unbeliever, having been corrected of his rebellion against God, the Spirit may remove rebellion in the predator's heart and bring him silently to his knees. And for the believer who may want to throw in the towel, look at the next term. The Bible is profitable for correcting, restoring us to responsible or to respond faithfully in vicious times. So now we've got restoration. Why does Timothy want to quit? Why does Paul tell him to continue? Why do we ever tell anyone to continue anything? In this text, Timothy's faced with the challenge that his hardship may never end in this fight against false teaching. And finally, the Bible is our only advantage for practical training how to prosperously respond faithfully in vicious times. Instruction in righteousness. Where else do people tell us to go in order to get a word from God? How about a word from God that's acceptable to God? One that will be considered righteous always. Only the scripture and no other source. Remind me where Timothy's living right now while Paul is writing this. Ephesus. That's right, Ephesus. So look back at, oh, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So how do we know where we're going to learn about these good works? Where do we get training in righteousness? Where's Timothy going to learn the good works necessary to combat the false teachers? And us, if that occasion should arise among us here, never mind. Pursuing the culture. How do we learn whether we should continue or toss in the towel? Only one place, the scriptures. Let me see if I can sustain that argument for you. We've only got one verse to go. 
Hang in there. Your roast will survive. The purpose of this preparation with the scriptures is absolute and complete in scale. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a purpose for God breathing the scriptures into existence through men who were carried along as the Spirit of God gave them direction to record his word. He says, first, believers are equipped to work by God through the scriptures in most difficult times. Yes? That the man of God may do work. That believers are equipped to good work by God through the scriptures in the most difficult times. So tie that together with training in righteousness and now good work. Okay, pop quiz. How many of you have heard that all our works are filthy rags? Yes? Is that true in this verse? Oh, no, no, no. These are not filthy rag good works. These are good works that God provides for us. Where do we learn them? From the scriptures. And it's the only source to combat the evil in our culture and to keep purity in our church so that we can grow in Christ-likeness as every one of us does our part. 17c, we're equipped to every good work by God through the scriptures in the most difficult times. We are outfitted. Who outfits us? God does. How? Through the scriptures to work for good work, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. And all of them, every good work, there is nothing more you need, no other experience that you need, but study in God's word to battle evil in my own heart, to encourage one another to be more like Christ. I need to hear that from you. Okay, we're thankful not to have to fight against false teachers who rise in power in many of our churches right now. I can't say that for all churches. But we need to be prepared and prepare our disciples for this fight. Our history through the centuries is dotted and speckled with memorable outcasts who took many victims with them. If we do not fight against them militantly with the scriptures, we will certainly be disobedient because the scriptures teach that they will linger until the glorious appearing of Jesus and the church will certainly suffer from our lazy minds and hands that forfeit scripture in the battle. We cannot compromise. We can't be neutral. We have to be aggressive and offensive. Oh, how do I say that? Not offensive, but offensive. <clears throat> I, sorry. Finally, how does Paul apply this? Look at the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, 
your Lord and your God. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If Timothy is to preach the word, if Pastor Daniel is to preach the word, and Pastor Jason, then they're examples for us to follow. We have to obey it. And then we have to be able to communicate that to those in our spheres of influence to fight against the evil. And where else are you going to go to present the gospel except among the lost? And they're coming for us. Scripture alone can equip us to combat the vicious times that are coming. To practice before the time comes so when it does, God will have already equipped us for every good work which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them and hang on and not throw in the towel including the faithfulness to press on in the ministries in which God has called you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for loving us, for giving us for giving us the grace from your throne. For giving us someone who presented the gospel to us and confronted us with our sin and our lost estate before you and for the Spirit of God to cause us, to, to grant us repentance and to grant us faith to believe and call upon a Savior to save us. Thank you, Father, for growing us and maturing us in Christ-likeness. We know your promise is to continue that until the day of Christ. Make us be faithful and gentle and loving and humble as we, as we face the wickedness in our culture and forestall it from entering this place so that this truly will be a lampstand you won't remove. In Jesus' name, amen.